it's time to retire old skills and bring new ones in and fast. The pressure is on for companies to transform their workforces as competitors go digital, automated, and everything in between. The trick is how. Workers aren't the only ones needing disparate new skills, HR and management likely do too. In 2020, many more companies will have to become human capital multitaskers, laying off some workers while simultaneously recruiting scarce new kinds of talent that may seem alien to management. And like a high-wire juggling act, any lapse could prove disastrous. Yeah, sounds intriguing, right? Well, that quote comes straight from the human capital paradox, one of the five trends we thought would impact the world of ESG in 2020. It was authored by our head of MSCI ESG research, Linda Ealing Lee, and regular guests on this show, Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall. And if you're into ESG or you want to find out a little bit more about how we're thinking, check it out. It is freely available on our website, msei.com. And our shiny, insightful paper came hot off the virtual printers in January 2020. Can you even remember that far back? I feel like I've aged a decade during this COVID pandemic. It's kind of like being stuck in Groundhog Day, but instead of a soothing Andy McDowell, there is just a cynical, grumpy Bill Murray running wild. But one thing this pandemic has done is to put any predictions through a pretty bumpy stress test. Predictions like how amazingly air travel would grow and how it might be a bumper year for Airbnb. So on this episode, we want to take a hard look at how one of our five ESG trends to watch, the human capital paradox, has held up under the chunky boot of COVID-19. And sure, we're probably going to bump into a suicidal Bill Murray trying to drag a groundhog down with him, but who knows? If I keep my fingers crossed, there might just be an Annie McDowell somewhere in there too. Hello and welcome to ESG Now. I'm your host Bentley Kaplan, still in lockdown, but keen as a bean to take you through our show today. Now the human capital paradox really took shape because the more we dug into data, the more we saw that when companies were laying off lots of employees, those very same companies were simultaneously hiring a different kind of staff, a new type of worker altogether. Take the auto sector, a company like Volkswagen. Manufacturers that are still getting to grips with new ways of building cars, like using robots, and designing new cars altogether, like electric ones. And these new ways of making cars mean two things. One, you need fewer workers. And two, you need a new type of worker, like say, software developers, that are in high demand. Which is why, paradoxically, car makers like Volkswagen and Ford and Nissan are laying off thousands of traditional employees while battling to fill newer positions. And this transformation pressure is rippling across industries and up the chain of command. And that's because if you're reshaping your workforce, you also have to change how you manage the people within them. Barking orders through a megaphone may have cut the mustard on a traditional factory floor, but that is not gonna get you very far with software developers and newfangled engineers, who are very familiar with terms like nap pod, parental leave, leadership development, and vesting period. So it's not only workers themselves that are gonna feel the ground shifting under their feet, but their managers and HR departments too. But making these changes too quickly could also be risky. A company could find itself laying off a chunk of its manufacturing workforce, doubling down on automation and robots, 
but underestimating the difficulty of reinventing its day-to-day -day operations and ultimately getting caught in a very expensive and very unproductive no man's land. And because as a parent of small children, I know that nothing creates pressure like a pandemic, I wanted to get first-hand accounts from a couple of people that are right in the thick of it all at the coalface of both workforce transitions and the COVID-19 wildcard. And I wanted to hit them up with two main questions. Firstly, what has COVID done to company strategies? Has it forced them to reinvent what they do? And how is that differing across industries? And secondly, what do those strategic changes mean for workers, especially the relationship between a company and its workforce? So let's start with Adam Young. He is the founder and owner of a company that manufactures leather products, right here from where I'm recording this in Cape Town. Adam's been running his small business for seven years, and like many businesses, Adam's has adapted and innovated to the lively tune of COVID-19 and is now producing face masks. But I digress. Adam, thanks for hanging around. Now we've seen a range of coronavirus responses from companies as they try to deal with this new challenge. So, you know, for your manufacturing business that's here in Cape Town, a national lockdown meant that you basically had to close shop and stop production for a few months. So maybe first question is, what was that like initially? And would you say the pandemic has, you know, changed your longer term plans? For me, it's, it was immediate survival, which is just like, how the hell can we get some cash flow from different places because we've lost 80% of our sales. And then at the same time, everything that we're doing was basically always on the plan to do for the year. And quite honestly, I don't think we'd be as far with this plan as we are now if it hadn't been for COVID. Businesses are like fast forwarding to what they need to be in the future now because they're all under so much pressure everyone's under so much pressure okay uh, well that's interesting and you know to be honest maybe not exactly what i would have guessed because you hear these stories of companies that are trying to reinvent themselves to survive but maybe for you know a smaller business it makes more sense to stick to your guns and hold your breath until you pop out on the other side but big business you know big public companies like the ones we rate here at msci esg research may be a little different their margins are bigger sure but then maybe so are their risks. To get us some context on those types of companies, I'm going to bring in our second guest, Peter Ayling. Pete is an entrepreneur at heart. He founded and ran his own company that used technology to improve operational efficiency for banks. But now Pete spends his time consulting to large companies on their strategy, their IT and workforce management. He's seen firsthand the incredible rise in offshoring of business functions and especially IT over the past decade. So Pete, thanks for your time. Now we heard from Adam about his small business, but from where you're sitting, how are the large organizations you work with looking to navigate the COVID future? Because in our trends paper, we wrote about a move towards more automated processes with you know, a very different kind of workforce. Is that something that you would see as still being valid? I think the rest of organizations are gonna double down on technology. Like organizations that have cash and the time to spend, even if they're not operational, their technology teams are furiously building automations and digital services. And digital services are the one thing that's been very resilient over this period. So my guess is that COVID will just accelerate the transformation that was already happening. Okay, so, so let's pick up on that. Because a little bit like Adam was saying about his manufacturing business, COVID hasn't necessarily you know, prompted these radical changes, but instead is pushing for you know, faster change, and maybe, you know, better competitiveness, a bit like, you know, selection pressure was just sort of dialed up. And I take your point because 
More automation might make sense for some industries, but not always, or at least not in the same way, right? If you're a services-based business, you're going to accelerate your digital strategy and your automation strategy because you can, because digital technologies can help you. Manufacturing is obviously much harder because automation in manufacturing generally involves capital investments and those companies haven't been able to make those capital investments in their environments. I would guess in manufacturing it might in the short term slow it down and in the long term accelerate it because one, companies understand how important it is for them for their long term survival so it becomes more strategic in nature. And two, the cost of capital is effectively zero at this stage. If you're going to build a factory or something like that, now's the time to do it. Okay, so, so you've got this short-term pain for a lot of industries, but if big companies want to get more lean or more competitive, this is actually a pretty good time to refinance your business, to buy new fancy robots or shiny factories, and to look at a new type of workforce that's going to actually sort of run these operations for you. But Adam, I'm going to swing back to you, because that approach may not work so well for a small business. And maybe not just you know, a small business, but maybe even a big one that doesn't have this you know, ready access to cheap cash. So, you know, to give us some insight there, you know, where are you looking for solutions to make your, your business more resilient sort of through and after COVID? This year, I had a, a fire in my belly about looking for value in everything. If, if I'm not seeing value, I must clean it up. It must either get out the business or it must change. Um, and then obviously when COVID-19 came around, I was even more incensed about this, especially as a small business with, with such limited resources. So basically anything that couldn't bring value ha- has a very short time span in which to change and transform. Otherwise, the business can't afford to carry it at all. If we play nice guy, which I've been doing for two, three years, <laughs> that actually serves no one at all. It doesn't serve the business. It doesn't serve me because it doesn't make me feel good. And it doesn't serve the staff because they don't get to, to grow and become better at their jobs. Um, they don't in- improve their skills. And because it's hurting the company, their salaries can't really grow. Okay, so Adam, even though you aren't necessarily buying robots to replace your human workers or even replacing them with a different type of worker, you are looking to make your operations leaner and meaner. Um, And you actually touched on how these efforts are maybe going to benefit your workers longer term, which then brings us to the second main question that I wanted to ask both of you about. Um, You know, and that is basically with everything that's shifting strategically for businesses as they adapt to COVID, what's happening to workers? Pete, I'm going to start with you. Because of COVID, you know, which industries do you think are going to see the biggest tension in the company worker relationship? Or at least where could traditional employee roles be under the most pressure? I think we'll see quite seismic shifts in the structure of certain sectors. If I look at European auto companies, the dependency on unionized workforces, pension commitments or, or, or burdens that they're carrying in terms of legacy workforces and their current debt-to-market capitalization ratios, including payables that are coming up on historic bond program. And then compare them to companies like Tesla that have focused relentlessly on building automated delivery chains. You know, we actually touched on the auto sector specifically in our trends paper, uh, you know, talking to the challenge of trying to shift to greater automation and change the structure of your workforce. Um, But do you think that COVID is going to, you know, take it even a step further than that, you know, and maybe even push companies to try and, you know, cut their overheads, um, you know, by shifting away from employees and towards contract workers? Beyond for a couple of reasons. One, if you want to scale a workforce, a contract workforce is an easy way to add people back. Companies are going to be very risk averse in terms of hiring. Companies are going to actually have taken the opportunity to 
reduce their permanent complements with COVID as an excuse, whether or not they needed to, and will likely use it as a union-breaking, workforce-breaking, benefits-breaking thing to move to contract workforces. I think it will go a step further. I think in many instances it will also precipitate not just implementing contract workers, but actually outsourcing whole business functions. I think organizations that can't navigate that transition won't survive. Okay, so, so for the record, Pete, you did preface that as a blanket statement. And from a purely bottom line perspective, it probably makes sense for companies to try and tip the balance of power further in their favor if it means they can keep their labor costs down, especially when COVID is squeezing out their margins. But I want to finish with you, Adam, because earlier you mentioned that you wanted your business to be more competitive because it will improve not only the economic outlook for your workers, but also because it would help grow their skill base. And for me, that is a super interesting angle. Because isn't there something much, much easier about just paying for skills when you need them? Bringing on contractors or consultants for a specific piece of work and then just moving them on when you've got what you need. There's a point to be made. I have been thinking a lot about employees versus consultants. And I think there is a, there is a lot of benefit in, um, in having someone as an employee as opposed to a consultant. Because I, I don't agree with this model of every, your entire business as a consultant and hires consultants. Because I think it's impossible then to build any sort of valuable company culture. And if you don't have a very strong, healthy company culture, how can you ever compete on a big level? If I, if I try, it'll just be me, one person versus a big company. Whereas if I have a company, it'll be 50 of us or 1,000 of us versus another big company. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. You know, and Adam, you and Pete have both given us some great food for thought. Even though COVID has put more pressure on companies big and small, it looks to have accelerated strategies that were already in place. And in some cases, COVID's called on companies to take a, you know, a more skeptical look at the cost of permanent employees in times of uncertainty. But Adam, your last point there has struck an interesting chord for me because underneath all of these macro trends, there are companies with living, breathing workers. And even though companies are going to be under similar pressures, their responses are probably going to be very different. And from an ESG perspective, we are very interested in understanding how companies are going to manage their labor risks, you know, in this very changing time. For Adam, contracting out business functions might be cheaper, but there could also be a cost in what you lose by not having employee loyalty or a strong company culture. Now, to dig a bit deeper into the final piece of this puzzle and how the human capital paradox might look post-COVID, I'm taking the rest of this show in-house. Andrew Young, out of our London office, serial guest on this show, and full disclosure, Adam's big brother, has spent a number of hours chasing the intriguing but sometimes intangible concept of company culture. Trying to get at what makes for good company culture, or how this culture can make a company better at innovating, more efficient, and successful. You see, it goes a little something like this. The environment that a company creates for its employees can influence the way they feel or think or act. And the way that employees feel, think, and act has a big impact on their productivity which is a pretty important outcome for companies and investors, whether we're talking about a local manufacturer in Cape Town or a multi-billion dollar global company. So Andrew, hit me. For companies looking at the transition ahead or for investors trying to make sense of outsourcing, what should they know about this idea of company culture? I mean, I know you've been involved in a lot of work looking at company culture and some core themes, right? Like long-term focus, employee empowerment, and transparent, accountable management. But maybe for now, 
let's just keep it simple. Like what does good company culture mean for employees or the company or vice versa? You know, what does bad culture ultimately mean? Nice way to put it. Um, I think if you're walking into a place with a strong culture, firstly, most obviously, you're probably pretty excited um, to walk in there. Because what, what we found is companies with a strong culture, they have a, a longer term focus, which allows managers and employees to make less tactical decisions and more strategic decisions. Um, employees are allowed to iterate. Um, so they, um, uh, the process of iteration means that there's collaboration. So it's those kind of things. Um, I think if you're walking into a company where, uh, with a poor corporate culture, you're trying to get through the day. You're not thinking beyond uh, the tasks that you've been assigned. And um, I guess you wouldn't be too upset to look for opportunities outside the business because it's uh, your role is sort of dictated to you and you're there to deliver tasks. Yeah, I like that. I mean, as someone who works in a big company, that all sounds pretty intuitive, especially about making tactical versus strategic decisions. And it's also kind of the perfect lead into my next question, because in this episode, we're trying to understand if COVID's going to impact the way that companies transition their workforces to being you know, more adept at incorporating new technology and automation. Can you break down for us you know, what this type of transition would mean for company culture? Like, how do the internal company dynamics shift when an old school auto manufacturer becomes like a Tesla? Yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a transition to make that transition to a workplace that is more that leverages more on technology, uh, for example, companies need to to do it in a in a man in a managed way. It's not like because the software tool exists that you can replace uh, a proportion of your workforce. You need to realize the the intangible value that um, your employees add. It's not just their, the hard skills that they have, but it's also the, the institutional knowledge, you know, you know, the networking within the company that is very important to deliver projects. Right, right. And that's exactly what Adam was getting at. For his company, developing and building his employees is a way to stay competitive, not only helping the business to stay in the fray, but for employees to ultimately benefit from that success. But I also want to play devil's advocate here because Pete had a different take and maybe because of the scale of the companies that he's working with, right? For him, the pressure of COVID may eventually drive companies to look at not only bringing on more contract workers to keep their costs low, you know, and limit the liabilities around permanent employees, but, you know, to even outsource whole parts of their business. So what's your take on that semi-dystopian future? You know, is there a risk to flipping the balance of contract workers and permanent employees from, you know, the, the perspective of corporate culture? I think there is some kind of risk there in terms of how we look at corporate culture. It's a sort of environment of open communication, of flat structure, um, of collaboration and, and iteration to build strong products. Um, and when you start outsourcing functions, you may lose some of that pushback, some of that challenge between employees of different levels. You know, if you're, if you're an outsourced uh, worker, you're you're going to perform a defined function um, and you're not maybe incentivized uh, to challenge the process or to try to improve the process. You know, while we can't, we can't say for sure that there is um, an opportunity here, um, you know, judging by our research and corporate culture, 
um, we think that um, you know companies that um, that build the right environment uh, might be better placed uh, in the longer term. Well, there you have it. Andrew's well-considered words. Companies that build the right environment. And I love that because it gives companies agency, the capacity to influence the type of workplace its employees encounter. And given the challenges ahead, both because of COVID and the technological changes that many industries were facing before COVID, agency is very much a sword that is going to cut both ways. As we discussed in our trends paper, companies that transition their workforces too slowly could lose out to more nimble or proactive competitors. But I think one part of our trend that's become even more relevant because of COVID is the risk to companies that make the transition too hastily. And we covered one of these examples in our trends paper, in the shape of Provident Financial, the UK provider of doorstep loans. Now it goes a little something like this. In 2017, in an effort to modernize, the company began eliminating its long-standing workforce of independent door-to-door salespeople slash debt collectors. Right, these were employees who knew their beats, knew who to talk to, when to talk to them, and how to talk to them. Soft skills and a sharp eye, things that are very tough to measure. And Provident basically tried to replace a chunk of these streetwise operators with analytic software and a small number of permanent staff. It may have seemed like a good idea at the time, but the old hands didn't like the new system, which did not gel well with their own methods. And these old hands started leaving at a faster rate than the company could phase in the new systems, which left Provident with a 50% dent to its profits. And examples like Provident are not thick on the ground, for now. But from what Pete and Adam have told us, COVID is lighting a fire under company strategies, moving things faster and with less wiggle room. While owners like Adam may want to keep workers close and work collaboratively, Pete sees the landscape of big companies shifting to digitization, automation and outsourcing. But being driven by the bottom line also means that companies could lose out on the intangible value of its employees. As Andrew alluded to, hollowing out your permanent complement of workers or outsourcing whole functions could leave you with a fragile corporate culture. One where your resourceful, insightful employees don't have any skin in the game, no reason to collaborate, iterate or improve. Ultimately for companies, for workers and for investors, big changes are coming. They were coming before COVID and certainly seem to be coming after COVID. And credit to our trend, the human capital paradox, it still seems to be standing. If anything, the margins are just a little tighter and the stakes just a little higher. And that's it for this episode. A big thanks to Adam Young, to Peter Ayling for sharing their time with us. It is always great to get some views from outside our ESG tower. Props to Andrew, not only for his insights, but this whole episode was his idea. I just rocked up in the last mile to take credit for it. A big shout out to Mike and Rick and Megan. It really does take a team to turn an idea into a podcast. But most of all to our listeners, you are the reason we're doing this in the first place, so thank you for listening. And please keep the feedback coming. Mike and I are getting some great ideas for future episodes. Your views and suggestions are a really big part of that. And even if you're just happy to passively let our ESG ramblings wash over you, don't forget to rate us and subscribe. It really helps, even if only to protect our very fragile egos. Thanks again for listening. We hope everyone is doing okay out there. Keep yourselves safe. Give yourselves the gift of a break every now and then. And yes, you guessed it. Keep washing those hands.
The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.